This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Sean Quinn from Simpress, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 367. My way of thinking is, uh, you know, finance is fungible. Um, if you understand financial concepts, that they apply across a series of industries. Um, going from a consumer products company to a creative development company to a hotel company, I always thought that I was always, always learning something new, but I brought a lot of basic financial discipline to the party, um, and that was applicable everywhere. And, and basic you know, concepts of controls, reporting, analytics apply across the board, and you just have to adapt them to the situation. But I think you, you know, finance is one of those great skill sets that is really non-industry specific. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to Andy Mandel, CFO of CoolSys, a leading refrigeration and HVAC company. But wait, CoolSys is but the latest chapter for this finance leader whose career intersects the worlds of Pepsi, Disney, Sheridan, Fox Cable Networks, and more. Along the way, Andy acquired a vast portfolio of varied experiences, one few CFOs can match. Our talk with Andy Mandel begins after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking to Andy Mandel, CFO of CoolSys, a refrigeration and HVAC company now, Andy has one of the most varied finance careers we've come across in quite a while. And keep in mind, this is episode 367, so we've had quite a few in the queue. Andy, welcome. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here, Jack. Before uh, we uh, follow our, our usual line of questioning, Andy, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind. I just want to highlight some of, uh, some of the companies you've been with, if that's okay. I'll just give a quick uh, recap here, and you can correct me if I get anything wrong. Your very early CFO career, uh, you were a regional CFO for Pepsi Bottling Company. Uh, you went from CFO of Disney Imagineering to become VP of Operations and Planning for the entire Walt, uh, Walt Disney Company. And you were a senior VP and CFO of IT Sheridan's uh, Worldwide Operations. 
and a CFO for uh, Fox Cable Networks. Is that right? Do I have that mostly right? Those are all correct. <laughs> um, all, all big companies, uh, about half of which still exist. Yeah, they, they certainly do. And uh, so when we ask this question ordinarily, it might uh, be a little more challenging for you. Uh, but we like to ask uh, our guests to look back at the very start of our interview and ask them what were those experiences that helped shape their CFO careers. And you've had a very varied CFO career. But if you wouldn't mind, can you, can you share with us a few experiences you've helped, uh, you believe has helped shape your career? Sure. Uh, I think that the uh, the first thing that comes to mind as I developed my career was when I was at Pepsi, I was there for about nine years, the first real managerial role I had. Uh, it wasn't a CFO role yet. It was a, a manager of financial planning, but it was the first time I had responsibility for staff. And being an individual contributor is a much different role than trying to manage uh, and get work done through a multitude of people. Because I went from just being responsible for me to suddenly having seven people of varying backgrounds and capabilities, they had to pull together as a team and, and make them uh, productive. And that included some accounting responsibilities as well as financial responsibilities. So it, it was a great learning experience. And, and I think that the first time I actually got to use a lot of the stuff that I, I thought I knew in business school, but you don't really learn it until you get in the real world. I, I would say that would be my, my first uh poignant experience just going through managing a whole bunch of people. Um, the, the second piece was when I went to Disney, and uh, that was my first real standalone CFO role. Uh, it, at Pepsi, I'd been like a regional CFO, but in Imagineering, I had my own total own team from accounting, finance, uh, IT, uh, and so forth. It was a separate division of, uh, of Disney. For those of you guys who don't know what Imagineering does, they conceive, design, and build all the theme parks all over the world. So uh, I spent a lot of time in Paris with Disneyland Paris back at the time in the day, Tokyo, obviously Orlando, uh, California, and Anaheim, based up in in Burbank and Glendale. Um, But going into that role where I had a much broader responsibility for um, the full breadth of of finance and and most of the attributes as well, was just a, a great learning experience because had a large team dealing in a very large environment, very successful environment at Disney with a lot of really sharp people. And I think I learned as much from the people who worked for me and I worked with as they did for me. Um, so I, I look back at that as being a, a major step at, at, in my career going up. Um, I love telling stories, Jack, so can I tell one while I'm getting through here? Please. Um, okay. Uh, I went to interview for the job, and, and I – said to my boss at the time, you know, the guy was eventually my boss, I said, you know, I came from a bottling business, you know, soft crystal, you know, sugared soft drink to kids, and, uh, you know, you guys do all sorts of design and, and, and engineering and construction, and I don't know that much about it, and, and he looked at me, and I can't do a southern accent well, because he was from Georgia, he said, well, Andy, you know, you told me you had a house built when you lived in Baltimore, I said, yeah, he says, you see the guys who built the house, I said, yeah, and he goes, do you think you're smarter than they are, and I said, I think so, and I said, well, they figured it out. So it, it always kept my perspective on what, what you needed to do to get your job done. So, um, and, and I would say the, the, the third piece that, that really took me, I think, uh, further along in my career, I went to a smaller private company called Valleycrest, which was a family-run company, about $400 million in revenue at the time I got there. And it was totally standalone. You know, in the past, I'd been part of big 
uh, Fortune 500 companies. And, uh, you know, when I worked at Disney, I never worried about where the cash was coming from or where it was going. Um, I worried about where it was going, but not where it's coming from. I have to worry about insurance. Someone took care of that. And suddenly, when I looked around and said, Who, who's responsible for Treasury? And I had to look in the mirror because I didn't have a treasurer. It was me. Um, who did our banking relationship? It was me. Uh, you know, I had a risk manager, but we, we went out and bought our insurance every year. I didn't have a risk, you know, a separate uh, insurance and risk group that was out there uh, doing that. And I think really, um, for once, seeing the full breadth of every aspect of finance uh, was, was the biggest learning experience that I probably had in my career. Between uh, Pepsi and Disney, you were uh, there were 15 year spans. So it wasn't like these were short stints for you. Um, I'm curious about the large uh, sort of enterprise environment, large corporate environments that you were in. These types of companies, of course, are known for their, uh, their training, their leadership development, their management skills development. I suspect you benefited from, uh, given your long tenure, you benefited from a lot of that training. Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, I learned more in my first, in my, I was at Disney for uh, Pepsi for nine years. Um, I learned more in the first two years than I did. Uh, I went to Michigan, so I'm not, I don't mean to slam the school because it was a, I had a great educational experience. But the practical experience of working in a company um, with a lot of other really smart people, and that happened at Disney and, and Pepsi both. They both hired really, really competent people. Um, and, and I think, first of all, you got trained in a series of managerial experiences that you couldn't have. Pepsi was very structured in the fact that they would do a performance review and they'd say, you know, you need to work on your writing skills. And the next thing you know, you got a, you know, get an email or a call saying, there's two writing classes next month. Which one are you going to? Um, and you develop the, the, the skills and the attributes you needed to broaden your, your overall experience. Um, and I think at a big company, you're able to, while you're a little bit, you know, only looking at a little piece of the pie, the interesting thing about being in the bodily end of the business where I was at, it was a full standalone business. We had our own sales, marketing, manufacturing, distribution, uh, pretty much the whole breadth of, of, of the company. We didn't do new, new development because that came out of corporate, but we really ran a standalone business, and we had our own financial operation in the market as well. So I, I think you got a tr- I got a tremendous exposure to every area from you know HR aspects of dealing with unions and union organization and, and grievances and, and so forth to um, dealing with marketing and sales and learning their aspects of the business and how you as a financial person could add value as they were looking at different alternatives on pricing and discounts um, and on through. And like I said, just top quality people across the organization. And I felt the same way at Disney. Disney really was, especially when I was there, and I'm sure it still is the case, was able to hire some of the best and the brightest in the country because it was a great company, great reputation, always on the list of best companies to work for. Um, and you get people that you can just learn so much from because you get intellectually challenged, um, you know, put together some incredibly complex financial models and projections. You know, a typical theme park, you know, we built Paris, I think it was about a $1.7 billion um, in trying to build the economic model around that and how that was going to work. Uh, subsidies, funding, uh, funding sources. It, it was just a tremendous learning experience that you just can't get um, in a theoretical situation like in a business school. So, Love both companies and, and learned a lot of both. 
just a variety of different businesses, including uh, the landscape development. Uh, you know, how does that intersect? Maybe there, there's some uh, synergies there with Disney Paris development uh, efforts and what have you. But still, it seems like such a such a, a mix. It doesn't seem like you were ever bound to one industry. Is that accurate, or I mean, what was your way of thinking? Absolutely accurate. Uh, my way of thinking is, uh, you know, f- finance is fungible. Um, if you understand financial concepts that they apply across a series of industries, there are some industries that are a little more spe- specific. If you're working in defense, there are certain rules and regs you have to live with, which I managed to avoid. But uh, um, going from a consumer products company to a creative development company to a hotel company, I always thought that I was always, always learning something new but I brought a lot of basic financial discipline to the party, um, and that was applicable everywhere. And, and basic you know, concepts of controls, reporting, analytics apply across the board, and you just have to adapt them to the situation. You know, there's, there's kind of this consulting mentality that tells you all companies are the same, and everybody inside the company thinks their company is unique, and the answer is it's somewhere in the middle because every place is unique and has unique attributes. But in the same way, can, you know, financial concepts apply across all aspects in every business. So I always thought of myself as being able to take those and apply them in whatever business and industry I was in. So, you know, yeah, you know, you actually mentioned, you know, when I went to Valleycrest, we were doing you know, landscape construction and, and development. What I had done at Disney, while it's a creative business, we actually built the projects as well. And I understand construction fairly well and even have a contractor's license. So, uh, you know, you, you can – Always looking to learn, but I think you, you know, finance is one of those great skill sets that is really non-industry specific. All right. Well, let's let's find out about uh, the refrigeration industry and what uh, what led you here. And again, CoolSys has fifteen hundred, I, I believe, employees today. I had made a note down in forty offices across the country. What you know? Tell us what what led you to uh, into this realm. Well, you know, at Valleycrest, we had two main lines of business, which was on the landscape side, which were maintenance, cutting the lawns and stuff, and uh, construction, which installing landscape uh, projects. Uh, CoolSys has a similar business model in a different industry. We do a lot of repairs on existing refrigeration systems, primarily targeted around the grocery business. So our largest customers are the Target's, Walmart's, you know, Whole Foods of the world. Um, and then we do a decent amount of installation work for new construction and renovations. You know, as grocery stores go through a lot of renovations, on, uh, usually on a you know, five- to seven-year cycle. So while it's not the same business exactly, it's similar disciplines. And um, I, had, I had, you know, come out of, come out of Valley Crest and decided to leave and do something different. And it was a smaller company, again, that had big opportunities for growth. Um, Owned by a private equity firm, which is the third, the third private equity group I've dealt with, and I actually liked the private equity model, um, and I thought it was, a, it was a good opportunity to use some of the expertise that I'd, uh, I'd been able to garner at, at Valleycrest. We took a company that was 400 million in revenue and took it to close to a billion, uh, pretty much quadrupled the profits at the same time, and uh, think we, I can apply similar uh, attributes as well. Um, did a lot of acquisitions, which uh, we're looking to do as well on the Colso side. So I think, while it's, again, similar industry, not the same, those fungible financial skills apply, I think, across the business as well. And uh, I think we're very well poised for growth and for acquisitions. 
I'll point out, too, that at Valley Crest, you took on the CEO role for a number of years, which is always interesting to talk to CFOs who uh, step into that role as well and how it how it's different from uh, how perhaps you're leading in a different way. Uh, any thoughts on that? And, and you returned to the CFO role, clearly. You know, I think that uh, I think management's management. And when you get to a certain level, you're managing people and you're managing process. Um, as, a, as a CEO role, you've got a broader responsibility. Uh, you've got to set some clear direction and guidance across the entire company and maybe be a little more visionary. Um, but I always thought I, I did a lot of that in the finance role as well. I always consider myself a very operational finance person, not a, a dyed-in-the-wool uh, green-shade accountant. And uh, I think I was able to take those attributes and those, those skill sets and use them in, in the CEO role. But, you know, my, my foundation and my skill set and my uh, expertise, I think, really rely you know, and lie in the finance area, which is why I ended up gravitating back to that. I actually came into Colsys as the chief operating officer for about a year before I moved over to the finance job. So tell us a little bit about Coolsys's, uh competitive market out there today. What What is it selling exactly, and, and uh, what's the competition like? Well, yeah, we're a service company. Uh, we don't sell we don't sell widgets. Um, we're out there selling our expertise and, and the technicians that we have working for us. I think we have the best technicians and the best trained technicians in the, in the country. Hard to find guys who can, uh, and I say guys because it's mostly male. We do have a few females, but it is a pretty, pretty male dominated industry. Um, who can who can work with their hands, but also be able to work with their heads and diagnose issues and problems. Um, especially when you go into a store and you get a, I was going to say you get a call, but these days are mostly electronic. You'll get a, a message saying, you know, my deli case is warm. And we have to run, you, you send a technician out there and they have to go figure out what it is, where it came from, you know, what, what's creating the problem and how to fix it. Is it a controls issue? Is it a mechanical issue? Is it uh, something that they, they can fix and need parts and so forth? Um, we are the largest player in the industry uh, by, a, by a bunch. Uh, it's a very fragmented business with lots of small players, some very good players, but relatively small. And that's one of the things I like about it because uh, we are very, will be very and have been acquisitive. And there's a lot of opportunities to grow both organically as well as uh, through acquisitions. Um, and with all of our relationships with the large national players, we bring a lot to the mix that some of the smaller players can't deal with. So, no, no other national players. There's a couple of equipment manufacturers who do some service related to their own work, but we are the, we're, and we're still not national. We're in probably yeah, 60% of the country, but looking at Gardner, the other, you know, 40%. So, what are the numbers though? What are you looking at? Uh, the key metrics you rely on to reveal how CoolSys is performing? Well, you know, the, the key pieces, as I said, we're, we're a service and labor-based business, so we look at a lot of labor productivity measures. We look at uh, you know, what kind of yield we're getting off our labor, how, how much uh, of our, our labor is billable, uh, what's our first-time fix rate on a call. We know that if someone has to go out for a second time to fix something, you've probably had this happen at your house. Some, somebody goes out to fix something and it doesn't quite work, work right even after they're gone. You're not happy. Um, and you have to have them come back out, and you're probably not happy about paying them a second time. So we're very focused on trying to get 
the job done, get a job right done right the first time and fix the first time. So we look at first time fix rates. We look at the uh, 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 number of return calls where there's issues with, with um, quality. Um, but, but the big issue is from an efficiency standpoint is how efficient are we on our labor? Uh, we have to dispatch guys from, from uh, wherever they are to their next site. Most of our, our work is time and materials. It's, I call it break fix work. It's not, you know, when I, when I came from the landscape business, we had scheduled maintenance calls. Um, you don't know what's going to break next. And you do know when it gets hotter, more of it breaks uh, because it's stressed more. Um, so it's trying to manage a, a, fixed, a fixed pool of labor as efficiently, as effective as you can. So we look at a bunch of labor productivity measures as a primary thing, but we look at revenue per truck. We look at, you know, out of stocks on parts. There's, we have a, a whole scorecard uh, that we use for in each of our businesses uh, that, that we can then drill down to fairly finite detail to see what the issues are and how to address them. A, a typical customer might be a, a grocery, a regional grocery chain that's now expanding into three other geographies uh, across the country and they need to spec out uh, refrigeration capabilities uh, for each location. Is that something that would they would tap you and help to look for your, your or no? What, what what is the nature of the consulting? Yeah, the the answer is yes. It, it, it totally varies. First of all, on the maintenance side, uh, once the store is up and running, um, a lot most of the national chains have long term relationships they have with whoever the service provider is. And we think we're one of the best service providers out there. And sometimes people aren't happy with their service providers, and we can provide, we think, you know, above, above, way above average quality service. So we believe we can we can uh, convince them to, to use our service technicians on new stores that are being built or or uh, new locations being on, gone into, um, and or renovated. Um, We've got relationships with all the major chains. Think of us, we do regional stuff as well, but our, our bigger focus is on national chains. So uh, if you deal with someone, uh, uh, you know, we, we've always done a lot of work for Whole Foods. We've also done a lot of work for Amazon. And now that they've come together, and, and Whole Foods is a very regionally-based company. Uh, they even spec the food in the different stores are, are different region by region. Amazon runs things centrally. Um, and they came to us and said, we want to look at our energy consumption in all of our stores. After labor and the materials and you know, the food products in the stores, energy is the biggest uh, cost that they have. So they've contracted with us to go to all their stores across the United States and do energy audits and basically help them become more efficient in how, they, how the different electronics and, and electrical usage systems in their stores interact because the refrigeration, the HVAC, the lighting, all are competing or, or, or complementing each other. And we can save them a lot of money by changing out lighting to LED, which is more efficient and less heat generation, complementing the HVAC and the air conditioning and the HVAC and the refrigeration, since they're both dumping cool, you know, refrigerated air into a space, um, how to optimize that for them and save them money. So that's the type of projects we think we really add value on because we can add a national reach beyond the guy who's got, you know, five technicians and can handle two stores for someone. You've already shared a, uh, a number of uh, great anecdotes uh, with us. Uh, so we're looking forward <laughs> to having you share yet another. I uh, want to ask for what we call a finance strategic moment. 
And uh, this is where, as a finance leader, you are able to see an opportunity or a risk and point uh, the organization in a new direction. Um, does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? You know, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure if I've ever had an aha moment other than showing people some information and getting people to understand. I'm, I'm talking and thinking at the same time, but I'm going to go back and tell a story from one of my earlier days when I was at Pepsi. Um, I was in Michigan in a regional office, and they were selling primar- the biggest product they sold there. Michigan had gone to a deposit law, and opposed to, as opposed to a lot of other states, they had decided to, to go to reusable, refillable bottles. So the product that was 70% of our revenue there was a half-liter, eight-pack of soda that was sold. And all of our sales guys had come to us and said, well, that's what our customers want, and and um, that's why we sell so much of it. And we went back and did, did a, as part of a, a huge analytic, looking at why did people, you know, why are they demanding that product? Because it's very inefficient to handle. You have to carry heavy glass bottles in and out, have a lot of manufacturing plants and so forth. Um, and when we went back and actually looked at it, people were buying it because we had priced it significantly cheaper per ounce than any other product that we had out there. And it was not that efficient for us to produce it. And we went back and said, you guys, you're telling us the consumers are making this decision. You're driving the consumers to that decision about what you've done with pricing. And we put a plan in place to change the mix more to cans and the two-liter bottles, um, which significantly moved the marketplace. And today, you'd be hard-pressed, I think, to find refillable bottles in Michigan. Um, but it goes back to it's the old, we we think, you know, our consumers tell us that we want this. Um, and until you sat down and did the analytics and came back and said, why do consumers want this? And we actually went on and did some consumer studies, and people said, of course I'd buy that. It's cheaper. And that seems obvious now, but at the time our sales guys, well, it's cheaper because it's cheaper for us to manufacture. Well, it was, but it was much more expensive to distribute. And they hadn't looked at the full cost of the, the, the product life cycle. And we put all that together, including the extra trucks to haul, extra trucks to store the empty glass, the full glass, and so forth. You really came down to it wasn't your most profitable product. The real product you made the most money on was actually cans. You stack an awful lot of cans, a lot more cans in the truck than you can anything else. So I think that was the first time I saw that the finance from my side was about, I've been working for about five years at that point, um, really changed the entire perspective of what we were looking to sell and how we were, were going to market. And really, and it took some time because it wasn't something that happened overnight, but over about a five-year period, they significantly changed the entire market mix there. Uh, you mentioned private equity and, and uh, working in companies now that are, are owned by private equity. Uh, and in the early part of your career, that was not part of the part of the ecosystem, really. And then later on, it became part of it. What Did you build relationships with those types of companies? Or uh, as you looked at other opportunities, they were just part of the world and you got to you got to work with them and manage with them. And w- can you share with us how uh the private equity firms became part of your world and whether you, uh, what that experience has been like? Well, you know, I didn't seek them out to start with. Um, I was at Valley Crest. The owner decided that for a bunch of personal and, and financial reasons, he wanted to take some money off the table. This was in 2006. 
And for those of you guys who can remember back that far, this is pre-crash. Um, and the market was hot. And uh, we talked to some investment bankers and so forth. And they said, well, the obvious thing to do is go out to the market and see what the company's worth. And uh, there were no other public companies interested in buying us and uh, lots of private equity interest. And went through a couple rounds of, of, of meeting and dealing with, with private equity uh, firms. Uh, ended up selling the company to uh, actually Michael Dell's private investment fund at the time. Um, but got exposed to 25, 30 different uh, PE firms at the time through the process. Um, and subsequent to that, uh, that about six years later, we actually flipped the company a second time to uh, KKR. And, but both times went through a, a whole process where you get introduced to, to a lot of different people. Again, a lot of really smart financial analytical people. And they um, fairly quickly, um, I think I, I, I saw the, the, how their models work and why it makes sense for uh, an investor to invest in, in a private equity structure. Um, how leverage can be used effectively, especially if it's not overused, but um, you used to to uh, invest in the business and allow the business to grow. Um, and I think if you, if you get with the right partner, it allows you uh, access to capital that you wouldn't have as a smaller standalone company. And it's a huge wealth creation opportunity as well for both management and the investors. And I think that uh, as a CFO, it's hard to hard to look at some of the, the returns you can get out of these and say, you know, that, that it's not a good thing. And if you've got the right partner, I think it allows the company to grow in a way that it, sh that, that it probably couldn't grow on its own because of the extra capital available to it. And so I think you end up with a, a better company um, and a, a, a more competitive company in the marketplace. And again, that, that varies some of the firms you deal with. There's some people who are, you know, will, will want to come in and, and cut and slash and burn, but we've been, we've been lucky. I've been lucky uh, to find partners who are willing to invest in the business and make the business better as we go. Thought Leader listeners, Andy Mandel is going to be stepping into the mentoring round with us right after these words from our trusted sponsor. Thanks for listening. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, so we're going to enter our mentoring round, and we begin with what is one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? You know, that's, it's, it's um, you know, the market is just moving at an accelerating pace. I think you find that, um, across every business line that you that you could possibly uh, get into, and I think finance is no different. You know, um, 
you know, the, the, you had a whole uh, years now uh, of recovery and, and, and things going up. And then you hit a, a period of volatility, and just how everybody reacts to that is just it, it's so interesting as you look to see how you try and plan for the future. Um, because I, I try and not think of just what's happening tomorrow or next week. You know, as the financial leader of the company, where are we going to be three years from now, five years from now? Um, and where the economy is going, what's happening with tax laws? Um, there's just so many things going on that uh, add a lot of dynamism to it, 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 to the business and to your projections of where you think the business is going and where what, what external – there are things you can control, but – looking at what external is external to the company is going to have an impact on that. It's just really fun. The first time you uh, received the CFO title and you were the finance chief for the first, what is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you? You know, uh, that, that's a good question. The, the, the best you have any, you don't know me. I well, Jeff. I love telling stories. So I'm going to tell another story. Um, Pepsi was a great place for developing people. It's got that reputation as well deserved for a great uh, people development company. And I was actually in our, in our corporate office in, in Purchase, New York, which is not that far from you. And uh, I, um, I, I was up there for our human resource planning process. We did that. We did a whole business planning process and then we did a human resource planning process here around people and where they were going and developing. And you know, I remember sitting in a bar with a guy that I, I'd worked with who had worked his way up. He didn't have a college education. He'd worked his way up to a regional finance job by just bootstrapping his way. And I remember sitting there and probably had a few drinks at that point. He said, you finance guys. He said, you know, because I was one of those NBA types. He said, you do these fancy presentations and get up there. and You're going to get promoted and you're going to move on. And, and, and that's great for you. But what does it do to the organization? Have you left your organization better off than when you came? Have you grown the, the people? Have you mentored the people who work for you? Is the place better for you having been there? And those are questions that I had never asked myself before because, to be real honest, I think I was very focused on my own internal uh, career growth and where I was going and hadn't thought about the fact that where my team was going had a big impact on where I ended up. And, and to this day, I try and keep those those pieces in my mind, I, I just can picture sitting there as in the Stouffer's Hotel. I can just picture it when he's telling me that, um, that that's, you know, kind of pointedly, you know, pointing out things that I hadn't thought of before as early in my career as a manager. And I, I try and keep that close to my, my thought process um, as to, you know, how do I make the people who work for me better uh, and create a better organization than I had yesterday? Do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Personal habit? That's a good question. I, I, think, I, I think I'm fairly detailed, and, and I think I'm, I'm very focused and driven towards results. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, I, I'll give you a story again because you say you like stories. I remember sitting in a meeting when I was at Disney with Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he pointed to this bouquet that was sitting in the middle of this table we were at, and he said, you know, somebody spent a lot of time putting that together, but it's really ugly. And you know what? I don't pay for effort. I pay for results. <laughs> and that stuck in my mind as, 
there's a lot of people who work hard and there's some people who don't work hard, but in the end, what really matters is do you get the stuff done? And if you can get, if you work smart and get stuff done, I think, you know, you get paid and you get rewarded and you achieve based on accomplishments. And, and I think that I tend to therefore try and focus on the end result and make sure we get there. And I think that's always been, you know, kind of my mantra. Is, this is where we always ask for a book, and I don't know if one has come uh, to mind as we talk. We're not looking for a finance book. We're looking for a business book. We're looking for something that might have changed the way you think. And, and you're going to get a, This is going to be a weird one for you. Back when I was in college, I was undergrad. I was trying to decide whether I was going to go into business or law school. And I took a lot of poli-sci classes. And I read a book that I've always loved called Victims of Groupthink. And it talks, it's really focused around the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, it really takes, takes two, two perspectives of the Kennedy White House. One is the Bay of Pigs, and the second is the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And it talks about how, in the Bay of Pigs, everybody said, it's a great idea, we've got to go in and invade Cuba, because uh, everybody will go with us. And no one, there were no naysayers in the group, and everybody... If you, if you get into it, it talks about group thinking, everybody starts thinking the same way because, yeah, that's a good idea. And as you may recall, for those of us, it predates me too, but it was not a successful venture. Um, whereas, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is thought of as, as a great success, and part of that is Kennedy set up two different groups to come up with different concepts of what to do, and he told his brother, who was the Attorney General, you got to disagree with both of them. So you can always have opposing points of view, and I think that's something that, you know, constructive conflict, I think, is a productive thing. You don't want it to be um, adversarial, but you like to develop differing points of view no matter what you do. And I think that that book is always stuck in my mind because sometimes you sit there and people come up with an idea and everybody kind of latches onto it, and sometimes you lose your objectivity to say, wait a minute, you missed a key point here. So interesting book. It's been around for a long time, so it's, it's I don't remember the author, but uh, I'm sure it's available on Amazon. <laughs> we have uh, our final question, which is uh, asking you to look forward for a change. Um, as you look at your priorities for the coming 12 months, what's, what's on your mind as a finance leader? Uh, what's going to happen with the markets? Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of acquisitions. We'll be going out in the debt markets to, to increase our, our uh, lending lines and, and where the market's going to be and what's going to happen. Um, there's been a ton of availability and it's fairly low, low cost. I think that's going to continue. But, uh, you know, you've seen a lot of volatility recently. But it's funny, I see a lot of volatility. You see the stock price, the bond prices have hardly moved. So I think that's really what's, what's on my mind is what's going to happen with the market. How does it, how does it react and with the, you know, changing the tax law? Um, all those implications, uh, you know, uh, I like to think that you know, we're, all, we're all in this world and connected. <laughs> the financial world and the whole world has gotten much more connected and moving at much faster speed these days. And things that happen in, in, in Europe and things that happen in Japan and things that happen in South America have an, an impact almost immediately on what happens in all the markets of the world. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm looking at is in, in trying to uh, make sure that we're well positioned to take advantage of opportunities that exist and make sure that we you hedge our bets when we think there's rest. Andy Mandel, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you for having me, Jack, and we'll talk to you later.
Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com. 